a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Come on, who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 118 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all around the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice, and please share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. As many of you know, I live in the Twin Cities metro area, as I just said, more specifically Burnsville, Minnesota, which is about 15 to 20 miles uh, from either downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul. And you would really have to be living under a rock if you're listening to this on time to have not seen the news of what's going on here with the uh, brutal killing of George Floyd and the ensuing Mostly peaceful protests, but certainly the rioting and the looting and the bringing in of the National Guard and everything that has been going on here. And I am not (laughs) where you should be getting uh, your thoughts on race issues and diversity and everything that goes along with that. But I do want to give a couple thoughts just because I think that I represent a lot of people who grew up in non-diverse areas. I didn't have a single person of color in my high school graduating class. I think there were three total in my entire school, grade 7 through 12. So again, not a lot of exposure at a young age. And I think that while I certainly don't consider myself racist, I guess that's not for me to decide. Ultimately, that's for uh, the people in my life who interact with me. But I think I definitely have been ignorant on things throughout my life as far as race and uh, the the damage of what, in my opinion, were probably non-malicious jokes and comments that uh, towed the line and potentially could have been hurtful to people in the past. And I think living here in Burnsville uh, has definitely been an eye-opening experience being in a neighborhood where there are Somali immigrants all over the place and there are uh, white and Hispanic people and just people of all kinds of different ethnicities, backgrounds that living in Fort Calhoun, Nebraska, Denison, Iowa, Sioux City, Iowa, and Aberdeen, South Dakota just never really exposed me to on uh, on a level like I'm seeing now. And uh, my wife and I went to pay respects at the, the memorial that is formed at the site where George Floyd's Uh, Death happened, and it was a really weird experience. We went there because uh, we just thought we needed to. We thought that we needed to support the cause and do whatever we could, or whatever small thing that we have in our power to, to do. And I think that going there, we had mixed feelings. We were a little nervous that we'd be the only white people there, or that... 
we were a little scared for our safety. We went in the morning because there had been violent riots there a couple days before. But what we eventually experienced when we got there really brought hope that this could be a moment of positive change because it wasn't a scary or intimidating environment. It was a melting pot of different people, black, white, Asian, whatever. And while there was clearly a lot of pain and frustration uh, in the air, it really was a hopeful type of vibe. There were people trying to, there were people trying to make change through recalling a local official uh, through a petition. There were, there were people there offering us free waters uh, for being supportive. There was just a strong feeling of solidarity that that I didn't expect to feel there, and I don't really know how to describe it, and I'm not doing this very eloquently, but um, I thought it would be inappropriate to not say something going into this because a lot of the problem is that people have been too silent and and thought that, you know what, this doesn't affect me. I'm just not going to deal with it. We're going to let it affect the people who are directly uh, in the line of fire, so to speak. And that's just not right anymore. So that's my two cents. I know that since then I have reached out to uh, several of my African-American friends and friends of people of color, and I am just trying to have the awkward conversations and ask the hard questions and do what I can to better educate myself going forward so I can be a better ally and we can make the world a better place uh, one person at a time. Well, that's all the hard part. Uh, Now we're going to go do the part of the podcast that you tune in for, which is our interview with George Grand. George was an anchor on the original Sports Center. He was the longtime TV voice of the Cincinnati Reds and has done many other things uh, with USA Baseball and was the MC at the Hall of Fame at Cooperstown for many years. It was a really good interview. This has been in the bank for quite a while. We recorded this in early March, and if you're listening on time, it's June 4th right now, so it may be, I don't think much of it's dated, it's mostly evergreen, but that is lifting the proverbial curtain when everything took place with this interview. So without further ado, George Grand, thanks so much for giving me a little bit of your time. Hey, Logan, got, we unfortunately, we've got a lot of time right now, don't we? <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's been kind of different. It's certainly strange, but uh, we'll all get through this. It's uh um, not the best of situations, certainly, but I think uh, we're a resilient uh, people, we're a resilient nation, and I think um, we'll get through it. It's just going to be a little bit different and take a little time. But uh, you know, I think the um, the nature of uh, of the American people really, you know, will be called to the fore as it has in the past, and I think it'll happen again. To the first email that you responded to, I asked if you had the time, and you said that between trimming bushes, transplanting flowers, and planting grass, you didn't know if you'd be able to find the time. Are you actually doing that right now? It is about that time of year. I just, like the two minutes ago, I came inside. You know, every time I go outside the house now, 
the bushes look at me and say, no, no, not again. Don't, don't trim me again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with, you know, uh, very little spring training and no games, I'm, I'm more ahead of uh, my yard work outside between the garden and bushes and planting flowers. Uh, I'm ahead of the game in, in that respect. And uh, fortunately, um, you know, we have that, you know, we've got a yard, we can, we got a little bit of room, but I feel bad for, you know, people that are in apartments or condos and, and don't have that, that opportunity. But, uh, uh, I'm one that, uh, when I get home, I go in the front door and out the back door into the garden, uh, during a normal course of events. So for me, it's enjoyable. So what are you doing while you're on quarantine besides gardening? Probably the same thing you're doing. I think we're, you know, the bad news is there is no baseball or for that matter, hockey or, or basketball right now. But, um, the good news is, you know, in the old days, they didn't have MLB TV or ESPN and, um, you know, the baseball network where you could pretty much, uh, enjoy some of the great games of the past. Uh, you know, I'd, every night, uh, you know, whether it's the 1975 Reds and Red Sox world series, or last night I watched Houston and the White Sox and, you know, before that, you watch the Braves and, you know, the Yankees. And, yeah, there's um, the ability to, to sit back and look at some of the great games in baseball history are tremendous. And also, from, from my standpoint, uh, you know, being lucky enough for the last 50 years to be in baseball, uh, it's tremendous to, to go back and remember the moments that you were there. Uh, you know, I mean, being in the ballpark when Kirk Gibson hit the home run off Dennis Eckersley or – you know, or being in Minnesota, you know, when Frank Viola and the Twins won there, or, you know, being in New York when the Mets came back against the Red Sox, all those those moments as you watch the games, the, the moments, and that, that really is what we're all involved with anyways. That's what we love about the game. Baseball is, is a story, and it's a continuum. And for me, it's been one long story of, of little vignettes of, of people and situations that uh, – when you, you know, rekindle the memories, you remember things, you know, being around the ballpark for, for different events. And then all of a sudden you remember this happened or that happened. Somebody sent me a picture yesterday of, um, um, I'm in the, on the sidelines talking to Lee Mazzilli and Mookie Wilson, um, from my ESPN days in 86 before game six. And they said, you know, I just happened to be going through this. I thought you'd like it. And I'd never seen it before. And he said, do you remember the conversation? And I said, I sure do, because both Lee Mazzilli and Mookie Wilson said, we're going to win this thing. <laughs> and that was before game six. So, um, you know, it, it, moments like that are rekindled when you watch some of these, these great games of, of years past. Most of the people that I talk to on this podcast get into broadcasting because they can't hack it as athletes. And myself included, I should I should not say that in a, in a derogatory way, but you actually could play a little bit. You were on the 1968 College World Series uh, champion USC Trojans that was just full of future major leaguers and a couple even Hall of Famers. At what point did you start shifting your gears from focusing on baseball as a future, as a player? When did you realize that broadcasting was what you really wanted to do when you face Tom Seaver in an inner squad game. <laughs> uh, I'm like you, Logan, uh, you know, we all had that dream that we wanted to play major league baseball. And, um, I was blessed. I mean, you know, I was decent in high school and, 
and was drafted and then uh, decided to go to college. And uh, my coach knew the, the coach at USC, Rod Dato, who was a tr- really a major influence in my life in so many ways. And he said, well, I, you know, the, he didn't recruit outside of California back in those days. And he said, well, if you come and you make the team, I'll, I'll put you on a work program and a work scholarship. And, and he was true to his word. I, I played four years of baseball at SC and uh, one year of football and had uh, tremendous memories in each of those sports, but also in, in the people that I met and was associating with during that time. And um, I mean, it started me in my broadcast career as well. Um, we used to play the, the Dodgers in an exhibition game at Dodger Stadium in January. Uh, SC would go there and the, for the Dodgers, it was just a workout day and a media day. And I'm taking ground balls at shortstop and, and Rod Dato whistles for me to come back behind the batting cage. And he's standing there with Vin Scully. And, you know, he introduces me to Vin. He says, Vin, this young man's interested in, in broadcasting and baseball. And Vin says, well, give me a call. And, <laughs> and I did. And uh, I ended up being a gopher for him for four years. Uh, back then they didn't have internships. You, uh, you, you ripped the wires, you cleaned up the booth, you got them, coffee he did the games with jerry doggett at that time jerry drank coffee vin drank tea uh, so you get the you get them whatever they needed and in the, in that period of time i watched the the greatest who's ever done baseball uh, on radio or tv and not only as a broadcaster is he a hall of famer but he he is a hall of fame person that taught me so much about about life about broadcasting about baseball um, and so, you know, I, I knew at that time that, you know, my baseball possibilities, you know, were, were not, you know, you get to SC and you, you're all of a sudden, I'll never forget the first day we went out and Rod Dato, there's about 12 or 13 of us there and, and four or five of the guys were pitchers. And he says, uh, he gives us a little pep talk and he says, go out to your positions. And everybody went out to shortstop. <laughs> In other words, Rod would recruit shortstops and then you know, usually the best athletes on their high school teams and then move them wherever he thought they would be. You know, Dave Kingman was a pitcher uh, and then he eventually moved to the outfield. Uh, you know, other guys, uh, Bill Seinsoff, who was uh, maybe the best hitter I was ever around and unfortunately never made it to the majors because he was killed in a car accident. Um, he became a first baseman because he was too good of a hitter to let him just pitch. And, you know, you go through the the, the ranks like that. My roommate was Tom House, who was an outfielder. He became a relief pitcher um, and became a very fine major leaguer. And to this day, still is very much a, a part of Major League Baseball and, and teaching of baseball. So you, you get down the list of the you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 guys who made it to the major leagues. And most of them you know, were shortstops when they started and then wound up uh, going wherever Rod told them to go. And we, we did it gladly. Do you have any stories of maybe just like the one time that you got a big hit in an intra-squad scrimmage against Tom Seaver? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, two things. Um, My mom and dad, um, and they taught me so much about life and about sports. They're both school teachers. Um, I was from Connecticut and went out to California. Um, They, you know, and my coach too. And they said, well, if you make the team, we'll come out and see you. Um, and which was great. And they, I made the team and they finally came out. And um, the week that they came out at, at USC back then, that was the last year of freshman sports before four years of varsity uh, eligibility at the college level. And at USC, you didn't get a USC cap as a freshman 
until you beat the varsity in an inter-squad scrimmage. Um, and it, it, I don't know if you remember, but 19, you know, during that period of time, 66, 67, that's when Tom Seaver signed. Uh, he signed with the Braves. They negated the signing because we had already played technically uh, a game. And it was, they, they negated the signing because we had played a game and he, he uh, was not allowed to sign at that time. Commissioner Eckert ruled that the signing was illegal. So they put his name in a hat, and uh, that's where the Mets eventually picked him. There were only three teams that, that uh, qualified uh, to pick his name out of the hat. But during the interim, that couple-of-week period, Tom pitched for the varsity every time we had their squad scrimmage, and I faced him twice. Uh, first time, he struck me out on either three or four pitches, and the second time, I got a base hit. And, of course, we, we've been friends forever. We, we broadcast together with the Yankees, uh, and we've done so many things together uh, at Cooperstown, at the Hall of Fame, and, and otherwise. And I always, I always kid him that I have a 500-career record against him, uh, which is certainly by luck, because if I had faced him 10 more times, I think it would have been one for 10. <laughs> he was the best. He was the best. So does the story change? Was it, for example, maybe it was a ground ball that found the found a gap, and then you know, ten years later, it's a line drive. Ten years later, it's a double. <laughs> How, has that changed I, at all? I could run a little bit. It was a it was a, a bouncer like a forty three hopper passiever into center field for a base hit. That was it. It wasn't. <laughs> but you're right. In my in my mind, it probably was a was a shot. You're right. <laughs> I just want to, we're going to skip a little bit. We may come back to it. I want to go right to your time uh, where, where you got to ESPN, 1979. And jumping into that situation where nobody really knew what it was, no one knew if it was going to to survive and become successful. And you left a good job at a CBS affiliate to take that position uh, was there any trepidation going through that process of whether you did the right thing or not? Um, you know, I'm a great believer, as Yogi Bear said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and uh, um, I've been I've been so blessed throughout my life and my career that uh, all those forks in the road uh, were were pretty good. Um, I, like you, um, you know, number one, I wanted to play Major League Baseball, never made it. Uh, my next goal was to broadcast Major League Baseball. And in 1975, I was doing the pre- and post-game shows to the Red Sox on WMEX in Boston and got to know the people there pretty well. Jim Woods was doing the games at that time with Ned Martin, and Jim retired three years later. Uh, And they called me from the Red Sox in 1978 and said, you know, we're going to have an opening, and, you know, we, we liked you when you were up here. Would you be interested? And I went up there, interviewed, and driving back, back then you didn't have, I didn't have a cell phone or anything. Um, they they offered me the job, and now I lived in Connecticut. We in 1975. In fact, my wife and I got married during the World Series of '75, but we obviously had no children at that point. Now three years later, we're in Connecticut. My wife's a school teacher, and we have two kids. Um, um, her mom and dad lived just around the corner from us we were very helpful in helping to raise the kids and babysitting and whatnot. I'm driving back saying, I can't do this uh, as much as I wanted baseball. Um, it, it's not right for me at this time. And I got back and we, you know, I, 
we talked about it briefly and I called him back and said, you know, I have to say no. So there was my chance. I thought to, to do baseball and I didn't know whether I'd ever get an opportunity again. And lo and behold, the CBS opportunity came up right after that. And the CBS opportunity led to the ESPN opportunity because Chet Simmons and Scotty Connell were at NBC at that time. They, along with Bill Rasmussen started ESPN and, they had seen me work in 77 and 78 doing the covering the Yankees and covering the Mets and, and covering the giants. I did a pre and post game show for giants football. And <clears throat> Scotty called and said, you know, would you, would you come up and, um, you know, help us just to get this thing off the ground. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I went up, talked to him and, you know, at that time, no one knew whether ESPN would last three weeks or three years, let alone 30 or 40 years. Um, and I went into my, my superiors at CBS and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to be released from my contract. And then, um, Bill Leonard, who's head of CBS News, I went in to see him and he, he said, you, you want to go where? I said to ESPN, where is that? What is that? And I explained it to him. He laughed and he said, and he said, go ahead. You know, when it, when it doesn't work, come back and we'll have a, we'll have a space for you. Um, but, uh, I went up there and, uh, never looked back. It was, uh, originally, uh, went up to do the first show with Lee Leonard. He, he was with NBC and then locally in New York city. And, um, the first night we went on the air, uh, there were, uh, there's no glass in the building. There was, uh, no doors in the building. We, we had the set that we operated on all the the remote production trucks were outside the building and that's where it came from. And, uh, the broadcast came from, and we, uh, we, we wouldn't have gone on the air in September of 79 had it not been for two things. Number one, we had a contract with the NCAA to rebroadcast five football games every weekend and then tape delay them, start them on Saturday, tape them on Saturday, then starting to run them on Sunday. Plus we had our, the only, contract we had for advertising was Anheuser-Busch and they said if if we didn't go on the air to start the football season we had no contract with the NCAA and no contract with Anheuser-Busch so we had to go on the air on September 9th of, of 79 September 7th 79 so um we you know if, if we had, had our druthers Chet and Scotty would have rather started around the first of January uh, but as it turned out uh, we started and it was a magic carpet ride, you know, uh, uh, Bob Lee, Chris Berman, and, uh, and I still have remained friends all these years. And we still remain very close. We had a nucleus of people that cared about each other and, and it was a magic carpet ride, uh, every step of the way in the 10 years that I stayed there. Take us back to that very first show where <laughs> if I read in the, uh, the book that they writ that they wrote by James Andrew Miller, that pretty much everything went wrong that could go wrong during that show. Um, How did you react and stay, keep it from going completely off the rails? Well, I think that's the joy of, you know, being an athlete, you always try to make the best out of any situation. And certainly in our business, you always, you know, people talk about, you know, what were, you know, what were the toughest moments and, and um, you know, some of the greatest coaches and people I've been around, uh, you know, I've always said it's not a it's it's not a tough moment. It's a tough opportunity, and the opportunity is to you know make chicken salad out of chicken bleep or lemon aid out of lemons, and uh, that's what we were taught to do. Um, 
we um, we had hoped to have uh, a bunch of guests for that first show, and as the afternoon progressed, uh, one after another kind of fell by the wayside. Chuck Fairbanks was supposed to join us. John Forsythe uh, from Charlie's Angels uh, was supposed to join us, and um, Bill Flynn, the president of the NCAA, was with us because he was in the studio, so we didn't have to worry about that. And um, uh, as we were getting ready to go on the air, Bill Creasy, the, who produced that show, uh, said in my ear, he said, good luck. I got to get out of this this remote truck. I don't know what's happening. And uh, <clears throat> we, uh, Lee Leonard and I just uh, looked at each other and said, strap yourself in. Here we go, Lee. And uh, a testament to his professionalism and, and our relationship, um, you know, as we didn't have the interviews that we thought we had and I said to Lee, uh, "We got to come up with something. You know, what are you? Are you in favor of a football playoff and and in college football?" And I said, "He said, yeah." I said, "Well, I am too." So we flipped the coin to see who would be against it and who would be in favor of it, and we did a couple of uh, other things to, to to make a half hour out of the show. But um, it, it was the start of what was a magic time uh, for all of us that were there. And I, I still, I, I was with. Uh, Bill Rasmussen for the 40th anniversary of ESPN uh, this past fall. And uh, I still remember looking through the glass into what was the control room. There was nothing coming out of it. All the the guts were coming out of the remote trucks, but, you know, Bill Rasmussen and Chet Simmons and Scotty Connell and a few other people were sitting there looking. And it was like looking in a, in a a nursery ward um, of a, you know, newborn baby. They're sitting there like parents watching this thing evolve. And, um, it was pretty neat. We had some wonderful people that worked very hard and, and all of us have remained close. Uh, I mean, almost every week I talk to one or two people that are either at ESPN or someplace else now, but we've, we've remained very close all these years. It was a great experience. Do you still own the yellow suit? <laughs> well, no, it's, it was a, the Getty jacket was kind of an orange jacket. And yes, I still have the jacket. In fact, Chris LaPlaca, who's in charge of their uh, media relations. Um, we talked about it when I was up there, I have the jacket and there was no, um, sewed on emblem with ESPN on it. It was a, like a pin that you put on the pocket because we had a, the Getty orange jacket. Then we had a tan one and a blue one. So we had three of them, but the Getty one was the one we wore most of the time. And I still have mine. And, uh, we, what we talked about, I talked about doing uh, was, uh, having Bob sign it and Chris sign it and then auction it off for the V foundation. So hopefully we're going to do that uh, sometime in the next year or so. Uh, but yeah, I, I still got it. Still have it. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to uh, Tim Brando, who was there not right away at the beginning, but was there pretty early. And he said that, you know, a lot of people didn't know what it was going to turn into and viewed it as almost <clears throat> a stepping stone type of job to get to a major network or to a play by play position. At what point, did you finally start to realize, uh, even though you left, that that it was maybe something that there was something special brewing? Oh, we realized it from day one. Um, you know the, uh, you know the, the, who knows how many people were watching that first broadcast. But every place we went in, in, in three months, it became obvious that this was something special. Uh, I'll give you a good example. We went on the air in September '79. We covered our first Super Bowl was the Rams and the Steelers in Los Angeles. And um, we went out there uh, and we had one camera and one tape deck and one remote truck. 
uh, but we had, well, I'm sorry, we had two cameras, but only one take deck. And um, <clears throat> the, the NFL owners also had their meetings during the Super Bowl. And we would, you know, uh, we, I asked Chet and Chet, we were in the truck and Chet said, um, where's your other t- tape deck? And I said, well, we only have one. So I said, what do you want me to do with the other camera? He said, take the camera and as an ESPN logo on the side of it, just set it up outside where the owners are going to meet. So that when they walk in and out of their meetings, they'll see this camera, even though it's not attached to anything. Um, and after the owners meeting on the, the second day of that Super Bowl week, uh, Chet and Scotty and I were sitting, standing outside, and out comes Pete Roselle with Val Pinchback, who was the director of broadcasting. And Pete comes over, and you know, we, we're talking, just telling stories. And Pete says, "Gee, Chet, this is, you know, what you're doing at ESPN is remarkable. It's tremendous, you know." And we had the five football games that we broadcast all week and replayed them two or three times, uh, and you know, we had an NFL show at that time too even though we didn't have NFL games, he said, but what are you going to do in the winter, in the spring? He said, you know, now that the football's over and Chet looked at him and said, you know, funny, you should mention that. And we're thinking, you know, of doing a bunch of things. We're going to do some basketball, but we want to do the NFL draft. And Pete Rosell laughed. I mean, he had a, a, a hearty from the, from the gut laugh. He said, you're kidding me. Who want to watch that? And we talked for a couple more minutes and Pete left. And Val Pinchback was standing there, a brilliant guy, and was really behind uh, getting the, the draft rolling. He looked at Chet. He said, you're serious, aren't you? And Chet said, yeah, we are. And Scotty talked about, you know, the, what the, the fundamentals of how we would do it. And that was the genesis in January of doing the draft in April. Um, and when we, we did that, when we did the draft, that April, I think, was the first time we all realized that this is something very special, that – People wanted this. People wanted something that, um, I mean, the fans that were there, number one, but the phone calls and the the, the communication that we had, um, you know, all leading up to that indicated that uh, we'd hit on something pretty special. Um, and at that point, too, we were we started to do college basketball, and I did a show with uh, Dick Vitale and Bill Raftery uh, that, uh, that caught on very, very rapidly, too, and um, it, 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 you've sensed that some, there was a need out there. All of us that love sports wanted something more than, you know, two minutes of sports a night on a local station or on the weekends, you were only given what the networks said they wanted to give you. It wasn't like we had sports center every night and Chet Simmons and Scotty Connell, we, we'd have a meeting every Monday morning, each of our department heads, we'd sit and Chet said, look, someday we're going to have what ABC, NBC, and CBS have, meaning we're going to have baseball, basketball, football, the NFL, Major League Baseball. Right now, we don't have that. But the one thing we have that they don't have is SportsCenter. And when we have all of that, we'll have something that they don't have, and we'll be ahead of the game. And boy, was he right. He hit the nail right on the head. You mentioned Super Bowl fifteen and only having one tape deck. That tape that you needed to send back to a studio from that tape deck, I read that it was packaged in some some odd cushioning. Tell us that story. Uh, <laughs> well, there wasn't only one. There were, there were a couple of things that happened. We had Fred Muzzy was our our one of our producers, and and <laughs> we would we would back then we didn't feed things live. We would edit them, or we'd send the, the raw tapes back to ESPN. And what we would do was we'd do the interviews. You talk about funny things. 
Jeff Israel was the photographer. Jeff and I would we're going doing interviews and you know for with fans and and we're, we're going through the the crowds that week of of uh, Super Bowl and here it is ESPN on the side and people are coming up to us in Southern California saying is that the Espanol network what is that <laughs> yeah I never heard of that before and so you know, we had, didn't have the money or the wherewithal to uplink things at that time and we were packing the the tapes to send back we had to rush to the airport we would drive to the airport and put it on a plane. Back then, you could do that. You'd get to the de- to the front desk. Uh, you go, to, you know, security wasn't isn't what it was then, what it is now. And you'd pay to send your your package. And the tapes are rattling around. And Muzzy didn't couldn't find a towel, so he put his underwear in <laughs> with the tapes. And sent, we sent the tapes back. That's the good news. The bad news is. Uh, the day of the Super Bowl, that morning we sent uh, uh, Jeff and I went out and did a, a series of interviews that we gave to one of our other producers to um, to send back, and um, we still don't know where the tape ended up. It was long gone, and he was long gone. <laughs> Those are the trials and tribulations of the early days. You were there for ten years. What eventually led you to move on and get into the play-by-play part of the business? Well, there was still that, that itch to be scratched of Major League Baseball. That was something that, I mean, I was fortunate to do college baseball, and we did minor league baseball at ESPN. And um, the first five years, you know, before things started to change, when Chet Simmons left and Scotty Tano left and um, uh, ABC came in and purchased us, uh, things began to change somewhat. Um I did the inside baseball show, which was my labor of love. I, you know, produced it and anchored it. Um, it was for me, it was, it was something I really enjoyed doing. And when the new people came in, things started to change somewhat and that, uh, they didn't want to do the baseball show. They wanted to farm it out, not to spend the, you know, money on it, but to, to, to buy one from outside. So I began to see that, that the, where baseball sat and we didn't have baseball at that time. Major League Baseball was being was going to be diminished, and I decided that this, you know, I had had wonderful years, wonderful opportunities, and wonderful relationships, but it was time to 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 take another shot. That was the professional side, and even more importantly, from a personal side, our kids were in grammar school, um, and at that right about at that time, they were heading into to junior high school, and I wanted to be there for their games and their um, their recitals and whatnot. So I, I knew that at ESPN, I was working most weeks, seven days a week and going on the road this way. I knew that in baseball, I'd be home for most of the winter, but also during the summer when I'd be on the road, um, they're out of school at that point in time. So it, it was a, both a personal and a professional decision that, um, um, you know, that it was difficult to make because I loved ESPN. I loved the people there. And I, I said then, and I still feel now that there'll always be a piece of ESPN in me. And I think I left a piece there is every time I go up there, it's great to see some of the people that I hired, some of the people I worked with, uh, still wonderful people that some of them were, you know, I mean, we had the greatest example is George Bodenheimer, who we hired to work in the tape library, bringing tapes back and forth uh, from the airport. And uh, his first big job was to pick up Dick Vital at the airport and he did so well, he ended up in the long run, you know, 15 years later, he became the president of ESPN. So it's it's great to watch those people develop and grow and, 
and be a part of their life and, and certainly uh, watch how they all came together. I want to go backwards a little bit now to your time working with Vin Scully because just being around someone like that, I would imagine you learned all kinds of things about play-by-play just through osmosis. But what were the biggest uh, lessons you took from working with Vin Scully? Oh, heck. Um, I mean, I think, and I, in fact, I just, I talked to a, a young, uh, a young broadcaster earlier today. Uh, he's, he's working at Seton Hall at the Seton Hall radio station where Bob Lee started and Bob knew him and uh, asked me to, to speak with him. And, and we were talking about, you know, the opportunities being around New York, go in and meet people, talk to people and learn from them. I mean, I was fortunate growing up, you know, in, in the business, uh, you know, I, I spent time with Dick Young, a great uh, Hall of Fame baseball writer, and Milt Richmond, another Hall of Fame writer. Uh, I worked at CBS next to Walter Cronkite and, um, you know, Red Barber I crossed paths with down one after another. And I learned something from all of them. I mean, Dick Young always taught me get something that nobody else had. He was one of the first writers to ever go into a, a clubhouse. Nobody went in the clubhouse before Dick. Milt Richmond, who had more contacts than anybody when he was at UPI, impressed upon me, you know, make contacts. You know, not just the players, but, you know, the, the coaches the uh, the PR people, the um, you know the the trainers, the clubhouse guys, they're the ones that are going to help you. Um, the Red Barber always just said, "Be yourself." Cronkite, uh, I, I I went in and, and not not barge in, but I I kind of weaselled in to get to know him, and and he he always told me, "Be fair," you know, put the story first and not yourself first, and and that was always a byword for me, and all of that kind of coalesced when I was eventually when I was with Vin because. I mean, he he is the consummate uh, professional, yes, but he's the consummate storyteller. And I think the one thing he always told me is that we're storytellers. Our job is to describe what's going on, be fair to both teams, and even though you may be broadcasting for the Dodgers or, or the Yankees or the Reds or whatever, but be fair to the players on the other team because um, that's our job. It's not just to be a homer. It's It's to... To, to broadcast the joy of the game and the essence of the game. Um, and and he, he told me to be inquisitive. Uh, always don't, in terms of my future, he said, look, you can watch my, me or you can watch other people, but just watch them. Don't try to be like them. Be yourself. Find out who you are, what you are as a broadcaster, and be yourself. Find your own niche. Don't try to duplicate someone else. Don't try to be something that you're not, if, if that might be the, the flavor of the day in terms of, of broadcasting. Um, and the, the most important thing he told me, too, was to enjoy every day. Um, and that means enjoy not just baseball, but enjoy life. Uh, you know, I mean, I, last time I talked to him, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm reading a good book. And, and he told me to do that. You know, study politics, study history study uh, political science, study the people around you, learn from the people around you and, and bring that into what your broadcast is. Don't just immerse yourself in baseball or football or basketball or golf. I mean, remember Vin was a great golf broadcaster too. Uh, and he could have done anything he wanted to do, but he, he impressed upon me to have, have a big view, a world view, not just a, a small view of whatever sport that you might be covering. 
Did you send him tapes as you were coming up? Did you continue to use him as a mentor or a resource? Oh, yeah. Um, not so much send him tapes, but just talk to him. Um, and I spent a lot of time in the Los Angeles area. And he, he would observe me, and we'd, we'd get together every time. Uh, um, if I was doing the, the Yankees or the Cardinals or the Reds, we'd go to Los Angeles and we'd spend time together. And, uh, and the, the other side of it is um, Rod – both Rod Dato and Vin would call me if they had somebody that they thought, you know, was worthy of consideration to work at ESPN or to, uh, to be part of whatever organization I was part of. I mean, it wasn't odd for Rod Dato to call me saying, you know, Hey Tiger, we got this young man who's, you know, he's, he's coming to the major leagues, look out for him. Or we've got a young man who's a young broadcaster who's going to be at AAA for the, the Red Sox look out for him, go see him, go talk to him. And Vin was the same way in that respect. Vin and, and Rod were, were very close in, in friendship, but also close in the way they approach loyalty to the people that, that they came along with. Um, so yeah, it, it, it very much was throughout my life. Uh, both of those men, Vin Scully and certainly Rod Dato had a, a major influence on my life. You are the play by play voice of the Yankees I believe was your first play-by-play full-time job after ESPN. What were the steps and connections that led you to getting that position in, you know, for one of the most storied franchises in sports? I think probably a couple of things. Number one, I had built a relationship with uh, George Steinbrenner uh, and the fellow who was in charge of Yankee broadcast was Marty Appel, a brilliant writer, baseball writer and, He's been in, involved in baseball and broadcasting his whole career. Uh, and Marty and I had gotten to know each other uh, over the years. And um, when I, I left ESPN, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, what direction I was going to go in. I had two or three opportunities, and the, the Yankee one just kind of jumped out. And uh, how could you not take an opportunity to go with the Yankees? Plus, Scooter and I were very close. Um, Bill White and I were very close. And originally I was supposed to work with Bill White and Phil Rizzuto, but that was when Bill became the uh, president of the National League. Uh, and and <laughs> I tell you, it's a, a quick story, funny story. Um, he called me and said, come on down. We're going to have, we're going to have lunch in New York. So I went down to New York <clears throat> and he said, I'm going to take this job. I'm not going to be there, but I got to give you an, a, some advice. He said, if, if Scooter ever says in the sixth or seventh inning, he's going out to get a cup of coffee, you take your index finger and you put it in the belt loop of his pants and you don't let him get up because if he gets up, he's never coming back. <laughs> and and he, he proceeded to tell me a story, a true story on how Scooter during spring training had left the a game that the Yankees were ahead by about four runs in the eighth inning said, White, you want a coffee? And White said, yeah. He got up and left, and he, he never came back. It was cold. It was a cold April, uh, April uh, March day. And uh, he, uh, he left, and lo and behold, Montreal, the Expos came back, tied the game. The game went 11 innings, and Bill White's doing the game by himself, freezing up in the booth. No scooter. Scooter never showed up. And that was when they only did one game a week. Every Friday night, they did a game at WPIX. Next Friday, we're waiting for Scooter. And he doesn't show up at 5 o'clock, at 6 o'clock, at 7 o'clock. Finally, Scooter comes in about half an hour before the broadcast with a cup of coffee and puts it down in front of Bill White. 
<laughs> and White didn't even talk to him. It was that's uh, that was the relationship they had. It was pretty funny, but um, yeah, it was a, a great opportunity. And for me, it was tremendous because it ended up uh, being with Tom Seaver. And Tom and I had been great friends, close friends since our days at SC. So uh, we had we had a fantastic. Uh, couple of years together before MSG came along and gobbled up most of the PIX games and we kind of went our different ways. After the Yankees you went to the Cardinals why did you decide to leave was it your idea did uh, something happen that forced you to go Uh, what was the story there? Um, Well basically MSG got the rights to the the games we used to do 85 games on WPIX and when MSG came in we went down to about 20 or 30 games and when I mean Scooter got paid you know because he was a Yankee but I you know as you know broadcasters get paid per game on a per game basis so all of a sudden I went from 85 or 90 games down to 25 or 30 games and it just it it wasn't going to work for me to from a family standpoint so um, at that time I had I had been contacted a couple of times uh, by the the uh, the Cardinals um, over the years and Mike Rorty, who was at Anheuser-Busch and was uh, with us in the early days of ESPN um, was in charge of their broadcast side. And uh, he called and asked if, you know, if, if I'd be interested in going there. And I certainly, I mean, how could you, you got to talk about being blessed. You, you work for the Yankees, you work for the Cardinals, you work for the Reds, three story franchises. And, you know, in the early days when I started in radio, the, the days of working for the Red Sox, too, on, on MEX. So um, it was, uh, you know, I, I hated to leave because, heck, I lived in Connecticut and it was a hop, skip and a jump to New York City. But my time in, in St. Louis was, was wonderful, too. And you eventually end up with the Reds in 1993, mm-hmm. and that one sticks did you live in Connecticut the entire time you were doing the Reds games? Yes, that was uh, part of my agreement, both in St. Louis and in uh, um, and in Cincinnati. The in fact, the the uh, the problem in St. Louis was that I was there for two years, and they wanted me to come in and do the hockey, the Blues hockey, as well as the um, the Cardinal baseball, and which would have meant I would have had to move there and. Uh, go back to when we talked about the MEX job and getting the Red Sox job. I, we decided, my, Joanne and I decided long ago that, you know, I, I love what I do, but it's not who I am. Um, you know, we wanted to have a, a place that our kids could grow up and go to school and have friends and not go two years here, three years there, four years there. So it was always for me, it was a, a it was a key deal maker for me wherever I went. And if it, if it didn't work out fine, I'd, you know, I mean, I'd go into landscaping, whatever I would do high school sports or college sports. But for me, it was, um, the, the people at St. Louis were wonderful. And the people in Cincinnati over the years were wonderful too. Um, being able to go back and forth from, from home to do the games. So did you go back and forth for every game or would you go there and stay there for a series or did you oh, have no. an apartment there? You'd stay there for the season. How did the process work? No, we would uh, obviously we go on a, a road trip. When I started with the Reds, we only did about usually about seventy or eighty games. We ended we did about one hundred and forty. So you were you were with them, you know, whether they're on the road or at home. 
um, the difference was, you know, I was always on the road. The guys, when the guys got home in Cincinnati, they were home. But for me, I stayed downtown, which was great. The people were wonderful. The city is, it's such a wonderful city. It's a, it's not a city. It's really a big, small town. Um, and there's nothing quite like Cincinnati and, and baseball, especially opening day. Uh, it's a shame that, that they lost it this year, as did everybody in baseball. But they have the Finley Market Parade. Kids get off from school, and there's thousands of people downtown, and um, it's a celebration of baseball. So um, I, I would, I'd be on the road. You know, I'd try to get home whenever I could. And uh, the other opportunities I had were further west, which would have meant I could probably only get home a couple of days a month. As it was, I was, I was able to get home with the schedule the way it worked, three, four, five, six days a month, depending on different months. How were you able to make that family life work? Because that's a really difficult schedule uh, with kids in a marriage. How did you, how were you able to make that work? Well, Joanna and I kind of kid, we've been married for over 40 years. We've probably only been together about 20. So it's, it works. <laughs> and, you know, as we talked about in the beginning, um, I could uh, really dictate what I wanted to do in the off season. And unlike, you know, a lot of my contemporaries, uh, you know, I'd, I would do some local broadcast hockey or basketball, but I didn't travel during the winter. So I was home from October uh, to March. So I was home for school and around at home for, you know, my family and my, my parents and my in-laws were, you know, we were able to be with each other and, and have a home life. So that was all part of the plan when I left ESPN was that no matter what we were staying here, we weren't going anywhere. Doing baseball on TV a little bit different than obviously what you would do on the radio, which is what you learned from when you were working for Vin. Uh, what were the, some of the key things you had to figure out X's and O's wise, for lack of a better word, to do baseball well on TV? Well, I think you're, I mean, obviously when in most cases um, on radio, you paint the whole picture. You know, you're, you have to, to give people at home a complete picture of what's going on on the field, in the stadium, um, at the court, on the ice. You, you have to describe everything, and you are completely in control of doing that. Um, and the analyst will – in baseball, it's a little different than hockey or basketball because you can tell more stories or longer stories, but in hockey or basketball, you have less time for the analyst to – you know, to, to chime in, it's critical that the analysts do it in a concise way. Um, on television, um, it's a whole different story. People see what's going on. Your job, and I think television more than anything, is is more geared towards the analyst. So you have to try to uh, describe the action, yes, but not over-describe it, number one. And number two, give your analysts enough room so that they can do what they're paid to do and what their expertise is, whether you're a pitcher or a hitter or a former manager or whatever. Um, so it's a balance. And I think that balance really depends a lot on the relationship that you have with the person sitting next to you. And I mean, I've been blessed through my career um, in in New York with Scooter and Tom and in St. Louis with Al Roboski in Cincinnati with Chris Welsh. And we you know, have done games together for 27 years. Um, and my goal is always to make and help make the analysts look as good as they could possibly look and put them in a position to succeed. Um, and once you do that, 
I think you you have a relationship. It's kind of like it's like I'm doing games with my brother. Um, and I think that's important to have that relationship. I've you know, we've all seen situations where you know people did not have that in a booth, and it shows. And I think it it also shows um, the way people view that broadcast too. Um, I think people want to feel that that everybody's pulling the oars in the same direction, meaning the. The, the people that are on the air, the people that are behind the microphones, the, the producer and the director. And I think that's something that wherever I've been, I've, I've always tried to, to bring people together that way so that we're all together. Um, we all work together for the same thing. That's to bring the best broadcast we can bring to the people back home. You're semi-retired now. When did you know it was time for you to start stepping back and relieving yourself of some responsibilities. Um, yeah, in fact, I just had a conversation like that with uh, a contemporary of mine who, you know, is with everything that's going on this year. And, you know, he's been in the game a long time deciding whether to go on. To, you know, I said, you know, all of us will decide and know when that time is right. Uh, hope, Fortunately, and hopefully you have the ability to make that decision yourself and not before somebody comes in and says, we don't want you anymore. Uh, that happens too. But, um, you know, for me, it was, I think more, more of a personal decision to spend more time at home. Um, uh, number one, and then number two, the, the changing nature of the game. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've been one that has leaned on, on the human side of the game and the storytelling side of the game, as opposed to the analytic side of the game. Uh, and I'm not opposed to analytics, but I think analytics should be the salt and pepper of the game. The meat and potatoes still should be the people and the essence of the game. Um, and I think we're going through a period now where that's changed. Uh, and I think it'll, it'll swing back the other way, um, but it's not going to happen immediately, but I think eventually there'll be a melding of the two. And I think we're all better off, whether it's internally from a baseball standpoint or externally from a, a broadcasting standpoint, um, I, I think it'll find its water level, the melding of the two. But um, I think we all reach that decision on our own, you know, and it, it's also, you know, coincides for me with the fact, you know, both our children have kids now. And so we got four grandchildren and it's great to spend some time with them. We've got a, a cottage on the, on the ocean in Rhode Island where we can go fishing and go clamming and go swimming. So uh, those are all parts of the equation that all of us have to sit down and make a decision when it's right for us. And we all, everybody's different. And there are other people I, I know uh, I, I was very close with Bob Murphy and I kept telling Murph in his later years, I said, Murph, you ought to take some games off. And <clears throat> he was reluctant to do that thinking that, well, if I start to take games off, they won't, they'll take more off and pretty soon they won't have a job. And I said, Murph, you're the best in the business, you know, you and your wife should have some time to spend together and don't, don't, don't wait till it's, it's too late to enjoy the time together. And, um, you know, he, he finally came to that realization and unfortunately for him, it was not long after that, that he passed away. So you wish that he had done it before that you wish that he had had the time to, to spend time with his family. And, um, I've talked to a number of people that, you know, in, yeah, whether it's leaving ESPN or leaving baseball or leaving local television or radio, there is life after <laughs> baseball or life after broadcasting. You just have to have a plan and, and find a way to, to reach that goal. Just as uh, you did, you have a plan for your professional life. You got to have a plan for your personal life too. 
you're the MC for the Baseball Hall of Fame inductions for 30 years. What was your favorite induction speech? Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> I remember Tommy Lasorda used to tell the story, you know, uh, I got five fingers and five brothers, you know, which one do I love the best? You want to cut one off? I can't, you know, um, I, I don't, every year was special <clears throat> every year and every ceremony was unique and not just the ceremony, but for me, the, the joy of being around the families of all these hall of famers made it so wonderful to be a part of that, um, to, to get to know the wives, the kids, you know, the, the fathers, the mothers that have been through so much for all of these players, some of the players, you know, many of them I, I covered, but other ones, you know, I mean, guys like Lefty Gomez and Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams that I didn't cover. I, I got to know them personally. And uh, it, it was just a, a wonderful heartening experience for me every single year. And, uh, you know, I don't, heck, I'm, you know, he asked me now, I don't, um, I mean, every there's so many speeches that just jump out at me. I mean, Harmon Killebrew um, telling the story about uh, he and his brothers are playing on the front lawn and his his father's at work and his mother comes out and uh, says, get off the front lawn. You're ruining the grass. Wait till your father comes home. You know, he's going to read the riot act to you. And they, they're sitting down at dinner and she tells the story and he looks at, at his wife and says, dear, we're growing kids. We're not growing grass. I'll never forget that. And the look on his, as, as Harmon told that, and we, we became very close over the years. It, you know, it, it really rang so true of what baseball was all about. I mean, Ozzie Smith um, talking about his, his uh, youth coach saying, and he was one, a tremendous, you know, athlete as an amateur and his youth coach telling him, you know, it's, it, you know, it's not good enough to be good if you can be better and it's even not good enough to be better if you can be the best, meaning push yourself to be the best that you could be. Um, uh, Bill Mazeroski, you know, every, he was one of the most, he's been one of the most remarkable people I've ever been around. And he got up to give a speech and 30 seconds into his speech, he started to cry and couldn't do it. And he sat down. Anybody that didn't know Bill Mazeroski then knew Bill Mazeroski. It told you what kind of a person he was, uh, you know, to watch, Sparky Anderson and Tommy Lasorda, two lifelong fans, get together um, and cheer each other on when each of them got into the Hall of Fame. To um, heck, I remember Bruce Souter, another one. You know, now that you ask, um, he told the story. He was going to quit after his first summer playing ball because he didn't get along with the pitching coach, and he he called his dad and said, "Dad, I'm coming home." He said, and his dad said, "You're not coming home." He said, "Son, let me tell you, this is a perfect game run by imperfect people." So gut it out and stay there. I mean, he, he could have left then, and he never would have made it to the Hall of Fame. Um, I, there's so many, like Andre Dawson. Um, you know, remember when he stood up and said, he, he looked at people, he, other players that were sitting there, he says, love the game, and the game will love you back. I mean, I could go on. I could give you 20 more like that. There, there are just so many great moments that will always ring true as I sit there and think about it. Um, you talk about what are we doing during this non-baseball period, you know, watching old Hall of Fame ceremonies and reliving some of those speeches in the moments and remembering uh, how they all tied together with, uh, with the fans and tied together. And the, the fans, every Hall of Fame ceremony was even more impressive when you got there because 
you watch the fans that came there, thousands and thousands of fans. And I'd, I'd always walk through before every ceremony, I'd walk through the crowd just to look and see who brought pictures of uh, Lou Brock, or who brought pictures of Mickey Mantle or, or Whitey Ford or whatever. And what are the stories they had to tell about them? It, it really is. For those people that have never gone to the Hall of Fame, you should go to Cooperstown. And if you got a, you know, if you have a favorite player and they get in, be there for that ceremony because it's so, so special and so heartening because it, it truly is America's game and it, it's, it brings, you know, it brings people together and certainly the, the, the essence of what the game is, is not just what happens on the field, but it's what happens in the stands with fathers and sons and daughters going to a ballpark, remembering those moments or remembering the players that, that we honor at Cooperstown and we honor every day. So, yeah, I, I think more than anything, it was the people and the moments. But uh, I couldn't pick one. Every single year was special. Tell us about the time that the skunk came into your studio at ESPN. <laughs> well, as we talked about in the early going, when we first went on the air, not just for the first show, but that first month or two, you know, the, the studio wasn't complete. The, the, the glass wasn't on the windows. The doors weren't complete. And we had um, the cameras were attached to remote trucks that were outside the, the main studio. And the, so the, the, the cables for the cameras went not in the building, but outside the building. So there's always a door open. And we would, there was a, a McDonald's up the road a little ways and we would all go to get something to eat. There was another, there's a white birch Inn, uh, which was a, a little restaurant in Hamps uh, right next door. We'd get something to eat. We'd bring it back and we'd eat. And it was a big trash can inside the building. And this one, one, it was one of the early sports centers. And I'm sitting there with um, uh, Lee Leonard, and all of a sudden we're just getting ready to go on the air, and in comes a skunk, walks in, and the, uh, Mary Walton was the camera person at the time. Uh, Chuck Woodruff was uh, another one of the camera people. He became a producer for us. And the end result was the skunk comes in, looks around, looks at everybody, goes up into the can, grabs a McDonald's bag, looks around, and leaves. And nobody moved. Nobody moved. The skunk got what he wanted, and we got what we wanted, too. <laughs> we survived. <laughs> Those are unique moments, that's for sure. Give us another. That's a perfect example of what I like to call broadcast horror stories, where something really weird or inconvenient happens as part of a broadcaster or a, a show that you're anchoring. Give us one more story that maybe uh, you don't tell very often from your long career. Ooh, I mean, I, I always call, you know, like we talked about earlier, I would call them horror challenges or horror opportunities rather than horror stories. And that when things start to go wrong, you got to find the best way to get out of it. Um, and, and we can all call on a number like that, but if, if you're calling it a horror story and I, you know, as you say it, um, you know, here we are the first week of, of April and, um, uh, every year I relive it. It was a, I love the game of baseball, but it was the worst day I ever spent at a ballpark. And that was uh, April the 1st of 1996 when I'm broadcasting the Reds against the Montreal Expos, the uh, first game of the season. Um, it had snowed the day before. We had the Finley Market Parade. Everybody was elated and 
celebrating the game of baseball. Philippe Alou is the manager of Montreal. Um, Ray Knight managing for the Reds. And um, I went into the umpire's room before the game, and three of my favorite umpires were there. And, the, you know, Tom Hallion, uh, Jerry Crawford, and John McSherry. Um, and John and I would, wherever wherever we met on the road, we'd very often go to dinner um, and uh, spend t- a lot of time together. He loved the game. He cared about the game. I still have a clip during the strike year, um, uh, during the lockout year, rather, uh, saying that uh, of an interview I did with him pleading. He was pleading with both sides to get the game back on the field. And you could see in his in his eyes the hurt because he wasn't brought, he wasn't uh, umpiring games as as he always wanted to do. Um, and as you know, as, as everybody remembers, seven pitches into the season, um, he had a heart attack and, and passed away. He turned and he waved to uh, his friend, uh, Jerry Crawford, and um, tried to get off the field. He got about halfway to the, the door behind home plate, collapsed. And uh, as I looked down, five minutes into this 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 situation i looked at jerry i saw jerry and he put his hands in his uh, over his face and i knew that it was over and we sat there for 40 minutes um you know while they administered to him they couldn't get him and they finally got him off the field but initially they just tried to administer him to him right there and you knew you knew it was over um and to try to describe what has transpired to uh, on this day of, of celebration the day of uh, baseball's opening day in Cincinnati is unlike any other opening day in any sport. It's a celebration of the city. It's a celebration of the game. It's a celebration of rebirth and to have it all come to a screeching halt like that. Um, and to have it happen involving somebody that I, I loved as a person and admired as a professional, um, was really, uh, it was heart wrenching. And, um, and Chris and I did the best we could over that period of time because you, you know, you knew, you knew as you looked down there what it, what had happened, and you knew the chances of him surviving this were not good. Um, but you had to try to get through it for that 35 to 40 minutes. So um, that truly was, a, you know, in the game that I love so much, it was the worst day I ever spent at a ballpark, uh, and the worst moment that I can ever. Um, ever think of in a broadcast situation uh, to this day, I still, and I spend a lot of time in the umpire's rooms. I always have, but I always uh, leave. We put up a plaque in honor of John and I, we're in a new ballpark now, but I always tap that plaque before every game. And I think he's still with us. He loved the game. And just as we all celebrate the game, he, you know, and the sad thing was we, we had talked the, the day before we had breakfast together and that morning in the ballpark, um, he, the, the National League wanted him to. He had he kept trying to get away from having his physical uh, because he was afraid they were going to tell him he was overweight and he needed to lose some weight, and he was afraid they were going to tell him he couldn't umpire to start the year. So he kept pushing it off, pushing it off, and there was the next week he was supposed to have his physical in New York. Uh, I just wish he had done that because. Um, he still he was only in his fifties and he, he would have umpired a long time and he was if not the best umpire in the game, he was certainly the most well respected umpire and one of the best uh to ever umpire. He was a, a special person and uh, we still miss him today. I don't know how to transition away from that smoothly, but 
Well, let's just ask you the last question that I ask everybody on this podcast for the most part. And on a day off, if you're just flipping through the dial or happen to have some time that you want to listen to a game or watch a game, who are your favorite broadcasters right now, both on a national basis and maybe a local person in your area? Well, you know, I'll tell you, Logan, I, I think we are at this state of uh, our profession. I think the, the state of broadcasting is better than it's ever been with uh, young people, men and women alike, uh, that are, uh, are in college uh, and in the minor leagues in baseball and basketball um, and in local situations. I think we've got potentially the best broadcasting group of people that we've ever had. Uh, and it's, it's tremendous to watch games or listen. Um, and, and I, I listen to as many as I can. I watch as many as I can uh, for a number of reasons. You know, and Hey, I remember um, when I was doing games and one of my closest friends and the guy I learned so much from was Ernie Harwell. And when I called the uh, um, Ken Griffey Jr.'s 600th home run, I, and next morning I get a phone call and it's Ernie. Ernie says, Georgie, what are you doing? How's it going? Did you have fun last night? <laughs> yeah. He says, tell me about it. Tell me, did you think about it before, you know, they hit the home run? Did you think about what you were doing? What was it like? So on and so forth. Um, because he was, he was enjoying the moment just as I enjoyed the moment. And, and I learned from Ernie a long time ago, you never pre-think a moment like that. If you're approaching you know, a 500th home run or whatever, you don't, you don't think about that. Whatever happens, happens, and you just let it hang out when it does happen. And I, I kind of watch and listen to broadcasters, whether it be college broadcasters or high school broadcasters or, or you know, major league broadcasters or minor league broadcasters that I know well. I, I watch with that, that same view and, and listen with the same ear. Um, to see what they're doing. And you know as well as I do, Logan, I, I think, you know, uh, the title of your show, you know, pretty much tells the story. Uh, give people the, the goods. Give people, the you know, what they want to see. Marty Glickman was the one who taught me the timer. You know the story about the timer. Give the score, you know, every three minutes you got to give the score. You can't go three innings without giving the score or 30 seconds, you know, into a ball game without giving the score. So I, I look for people, and if if they're people I know, I'll congratulate them on something that they did. If they had a, a moment that certainly is historic or a moment that, you know, I mean, I, I've had situations where I called. A good example is Joe Castiglione, who he and I grew up together in Connecticut. He now broadcasts for the Red Sox, and I look forward to the day when he is honored in Cooperstown. But, um, you know, he had when they went to London last year, they ended up in that horrendous game. Remember that uh, it took forever. It was a five-hour game. <laughs> and I called him. I texted him during the game, and then he called me after the game. He was taking a week off after that, and I said, "Boy, you sure needed a week after that." And he, he did. Um, so those are the things I look for. You know, and you know as well as I do, I, I can watch a game or listen to a game, and in the span of if it's baseball in an inning or two, I know if a person's done their homework or they're just reading the notes that have been given them uh, or same thing for basketball or hockey or football. Uh, and I, I certainly appreciate the young people who, who bring their own stories and bring their own homework to the, to the table and not just read what the notes say. And, and also, you know, tell some stories that, that relate to the, the game 
we we're inundated with analytics and numbers in so many ways in every sport today that the way you you put your stamp on a game is not by catchphrases. The way you put your stamp on a game is by doing your homework and coming up with something that somebody else doesn't have. So um, that's the end result. I mean, over the years, uh, you know, my favorite guy, that's Vin Scully, but whether it's Mel Allen, Red Barber, Ernie Harwell, Marty Glickman, Kirk Gowdy, uh, Jim McKay. I mean, go down the list of all those guys. Um, and another one, Les Kiter, um, who used to recreate the games. Um, when I was a Giants fan growing up as a kid, and Les, when the Giants moved to San Francisco, he used to recreate the games. And I learned from him, uh, as I got to know him later on, how to recreate a game. And I ended up doing that when I was at, at KUSC, when I was a broadcaster on the campus at USC. So those are the things I look for. Those are the things I enjoy. And uh, as I said, I think we're pretty lucky. We've got a lot of young people that are growing. Uh, I think they're going to, this next generation of broadcasters will will help to, to raise the level of uh, professionalism and raise the level uh, of our profession, which is, is kind of neat, I think. Well said, and I think I'm going to let you off the hook after that. Um, once again, we're talking with George Grand. He is the original Sports Center anchor, longtime voice of the Cincinnati Reds on TV and George, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Oh, uh, email is ggrand, G-G-R-A-N-D-E, the number 24. I was a Willie Mays fan. The number 24 at AOL.com. That's that's probably the best way. But uh, been a joy, uh, enjoyed being with you, Logan. And uh, um, I, I wish you all the best of luck on your show. Have some fun, you know, like, like we talked about uh the best thing is do work hard, have fun, and good things will will happen. And uh, you're doing some good things with with your your show. And I wish you all the best. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember that iTunes reviews, emails, or honest feedback of any kind are always greatly appreciated and help me to make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of this show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.